Good morning. We are back in John uh, this morning. Last week we were we took a little hiatus out of John into Philippians four. There was a message on anxiety, uh, but we're going back into our series through John, preaching through the book. And so, if you have a copy of God's Word, I just want to encourage you to turn to John chapter one. John chapter one. I'm going to read the first eighteen verses, but we're going to focus on verses twelve and thirteen this morning. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I'll read that whole section again for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. As I said, we're going to be focusing on verses 12 and 13. And John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 shows us how to become children of God. How to become children of God. And I realize that simply saying that immediately flies in the face of our culture today. What do you mean... Become children of God. We're all God's children. Which begs the question, are we all God's children? One of the things we have to be careful about in the Christian faith is using very loose and unclear language. Sometimes we say things without defining our terms and sometimes we speak more like our traditions than we do like the truth. And so we have to be clear. There is a real sense in which we are all God's children. But there's also another real sense in which we are not all God's children. And there's a way to show you that. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, for instance, when he was in Athens in Acts 17, Paul, are we all God's children? He would have said, yes. If you were to ask John here in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John, are we all God's children? He would say no. And they would both be right. 
It's true that we are all God's children if we're talking about creation and not salvation. If we're talking about God making us, not saving us. So I'll give you the example from Acts 17 with the Apostle Paul. You don't have to flip there. I'll read it for you. Acts 17, 26 through 29. Here's what Paul said to the people of Athens when he arrived. He said, He, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he created everyone. That's what Paul's saying. He did this that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, here's what Paul says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. He's made us. We don't exist apart from him. In him, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. Now he's talking to the people of Athens. Some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Why? Because man did not create God. God created man. And in that sense, we are all God's offspring. We're all God's children. But Paul's talking about God creating us there. We're all God's children in the sense that he made us. But there is something to point out about what, John, about what Paul said in Acts 17. In verse 18, he says, Even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. He's quoting the people of Athens. Which means that Paul didn't normally talk like this. Paul didn't normally talk about us all being God's offspring. That's not the typical language he used. He's just using the language of the people of Athens to find common ground with theirs. Within. So Paul believed that God made us, and the poets of Athens also believed that some kind of God made us. But they expressed it in different ways. Paul said, In him we move and live and have our being. The poet said, We're his offspring. And Paul doesn't argue with it. He just accepts it, he rolls with it, and says, Okay, we're all agreed here. God made all of us. So we're all God's children, at least in that sense. Are we all God's children? Yes, if we're talking about creation, not salvation. If we're talking about being made, not being saved. So if there's a tragedy that happens and many people lose their lives and someone on the news says, this is terrible to see because everyone on that plane was God's child. We can agree. It's sad because people lost their lives and all those people were made by God in his image. Or if a kid is mean to another kid on the playground and the teacher says, Johnny, you need to respect your other classmates because we are all God's children. We can agree. All people have been made by God in his image and they deserve respect and dignity as such. The problem is, is I don't think that's what most people mean when they say we're all God's children. Because that sense simply means that we're all created by God. And that should go for every human. It goes for Johnny. It goes for Sally. Just as it does 
for Hitler. Your sweet, precious daughter and your son are just as much a child of God in that sense as Ted Bundy. God made them all. So they're all God's children. But for some reason, people begin to get a little little uncomfortable with that. They begin to get a little uncomfortable because they really mean something different when they say we're all God's children. What they mean is that God didn't just create us, but he loves us all the same and is in a good relationship with us and smiles upon us and has his loving hand on us and has nothing bad to say about us. He's in a good relationship with us and I'm in a good relationship with God because I'm a child of God, but of course not Hitler. Of course not Ted Bundy. So really, Matt, what I'm saying is when I say we're all God's children, I really mean that only some of us are. And of course I am. Because God certainly loves me and he won't judge me. He won't think poorly of me because I'm his precious child. And so now this statement, we're all God's children, really becomes this feeling that God will treat us with acceptance and understanding no matter what. Not only like we're all made, but almost like we're all saved. We're okay and we're safe before God, even though we sin and rebel against him, we're his children. So it's just, it's all okay. He'll understand because he loves us. It's like Alan Jackson says in his song, here comes a Baptist, here comes a Jew. There goes a Mormon and a Muslim too. I see a Buddhist and a Hindu. I see a Catholic and I see you. We're all God's children. So are we all God's children in that sense? In the sense of salvation. In the sense of being right with God. The answer to that question is no. For Hitler, for Bundy, for Johnny, and for Sally. That's what John says. Verses 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. So in this sense, the children of God are those who receive Jesus. And they're given the right to become God's children. The only way you can become something today is if you weren't that something yesterday. So we're not all God's children in the sense of salvation. In the sense of being right with God, which means now, friends that this passage is very, very important because you do not want to get to the end of your life thinking you're a child of God to find out that you're really not. Thinking that all is well between you and the King of Kings to find out there's actually a massive problem. So let's explore this passage in a couple of different ways. First thing I want us to explore this morning is how someone does not become a child of God. How someone does not become a child of God. Children are born. Children of God are born again. So how does someone not get born again? Let's read verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So they were born not by certain means. They were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. You do not become a child of God by any of those human efforts. And all three of those knots there in, chapter, in verse 13 combine to give us the same basic point. And it's the point that Jesus makes later in chapter 3 in this gospel. When he's speaking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus comes to him and Jesus tells him how to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused. How can someone be born again? Can they go into their mother's womb a second time and be birthed a second time? And Jesus says, no, Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, being born of God is not the same thing as being born of a human. Your natural birth has nothing to do with your supernatural birth. D.A. Carson says being born into the family of God is quite different from being born into a human family. So you do not become a child of God by Blood or by your bloodline. You do not become a child of God by the will of the flesh, which here is really indicating sexual desire based on who your parents are. You do not become a child of God by the will of a man or literally the will of the husband, who in this day and time was seen as leading the charge in the sexual act in marriage. All of these things are saying you do not become a child of God because of your lineage or your ethnicity or your heritage or your birthplace. That is not how you become a child of God. You see, there is a belief, especially among the Jews in Jesus' day, that their heritage as descendants of Abraham automatically made them God's children. And so Jesus says in John chapter 8, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. In other words, he's looking at the Jews and saying, being a descendant of Abraham means nothing if you don't have faith in me. And John is hitting on that same theme, the theme that showed up in chapter 3, the theme that shows up in chapter 8. He's hitting on that theme right here at the beginning in chapter 1. You do not become a child of God because you're a child of some lineage. Being born again is not an act of the marriage bed. It's an act of God alone. That's what he's saying. So what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean, perhaps, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not sure about your relationship with God? There's a few things it means. I'm going to give you a couple of implications. Here's the first one. You do not become a child of God because of the family you were born into. Growing up in a Christian home does not save you, which is really, really important for you children to know. So listen closely. If you're a boy or girl here this morning, it's a wonderful thing that your mom and dad love Jesus. But you are not saved just because they are. 
You must, you must also love Jesus. You also must trust in him for forgiveness and life. And so I invite you today to do that. To place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. To trust in what he did on the cross to die for you, to forgive your sin, and to give you a relationship with the Father. If you will do that, you will become one of God's children. You don't become a child of God because of the family you were born into. Here's another implication for unbelievers. You don't become a child of God because of your church background. Just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you're saved. And just because you grew up in Sunday school and you can dot all your theological T's and, or cross all your theological T's and dot all your theological I's, that doesn't mean you're a child of God. And the concern here is that especially in the South, that some of you might have your trust and your faith in what you were and what you did back then instead of in Jesus himself. You do not become a child of God because of the background that you were born into. Years of Sunday school followed by decades of backsliding. You ought to ask yourself the question, are you saved because you went to Sunday school? Are you really a child of God? Here's another implication. You do not become a child of God because of the country you were born in. There's absolutely nothing about being born in America and raised in the South that makes you a Christian. Apple pies and grits and gravy taste good, but they will not get you into heaven. And neither will the red, white, and blue flag outside your house. That's not how you become a child of God. Which means ultimately that your hope is not in your lineage. It's not in your background. It's not in your nationality. There's a lot of talk these days about all of our different heritages. And those are extremely important, but they mean nothing in terms of being a child of God. So if your hope is in that, it's a very shallow, shallow hope. John is saying that's not how you get saved, which by the way is actually good news for us this morning if you feel like you don't check all the boxes. Like what's my hope? My parents weren't Christians. What if I never grew up in church and I didn't learn all of these things? What if I was born in a community that rejected anything that had to do with Christianity? What's my hope? And the good news is that none of those things would have saved you in the first place. And so not having them doesn't make you a lost cause. The focus of John 1, 12 through 13 is to get your eyes off of you and where you were born and who your parents are and what your ethnicity is and what your background you had in the church growing up to get your eyes off of yourself and off of your performance, off of your circumstances and to put them ultimately on Jesus. The real question is, have you been born again by God? And you can't answer that by looking at your birth certificate. So there's a lot here for you if you're not sure about your faith. But there's also one extra implication I want to make briefly for believers, especially for members of King's Tree Church. And that's that this very truth should encourage unity in the church. Because every member in this church at least claims to be a born-again believer. And that means that every member in this church claims to be a Christian, not 
because of our ethnicity. Not because of our traditions. Not because of our background. Not because of where we grew up, but because of what God has done. And there is a powerful unity in the church when we can all say why we're not here. Because I may have one skin tone, you may have another, but that's not our hope. And that's not why we're children of God. I may have this kind of childhood, you may have that kind of childhood, but that's not why we're here together in this church. So the things that could divide us, the things that could make someone feel superior to the other, the things that could make one feel the need to brag, we're all united in the church saying those things are not why we are what we are. Instead, we declare this with Paul. Paul said this, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is saying is our background, our heritage, our lineage is not everything to me anymore because it never made me a child of God, but Christ did. Christ made me a child of God. Christ made you a child of God. So in my life and in our church life, Christ is all and in all. That's what Paul is saying. So we have unity. So you can see there's actually much to cherish cherish in this passage from just observing how we do not become God's children. So how does somebody become a child of God? Which is the next question to explore. And this passage is interesting because it gives us two answers. The first answer is to receive Jesus, which John defines as believing in his name. The second answer is to be born of God. So see if you can find those two answers as I read it in our passage again. Verses 12 and 13. I want to make sure you see it too and I'm not just making up stuff. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So the children of God become children by receiving Jesus and by being born again by God himself. Verse 13 says the children of God are born of God. We do not become his children by bloodlines and our church background and our ethnicity or our nationality. We must be ultimately born by God. And that is a total act of grace and sheer mercy. I'll prove it to you. My wife and our newborn son are here this morning, but over a week ago, Haddon was born and I was there. And I can tell you as an eyewitness that Haddon did not birth himself. Being born is not something you do. It's something someone else does to birth you. We're totally helpless without somebody birthing us. And in this case, being born again is a spiritual birth that God does. Becoming a child of God is an act of God. And so when you think about your status as a Christian, when you think about being one of God's children... You can remember that it's nothing you did. But it's all an act of grace and mercy from him. We sang these words this morning. We'll get to sing them again at the end of the service. 
I was an orphan lost at the fall, running away when I'd hear you call, but Father, you worked your will. I had no righteousness of my own. I had no right to draw near your throne, but Father, you love me still. And then we sang this. And in love before you laid the world's foundation, you predestined to adopt me as your own. You have raised me up so high above my station. I'm a child of God by grace and grace alone. We are not God's children by birthright. We are not God's children by nature. We are God's children by adoption. God does something to us. He births us again and gives us new life. He adopts us into his family. We were orphans. He made us his children. But does that mean we do nothing? If it's completely an act of God, is there anything at all that we do to become his children? And yes, there is. Because the other answer is that we must receive Jesus Christ by believing in his name. So look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the ones God gives the right to become his children are those who receive Jesus. And receiving Jesus here is defined as believing in his name, which are really one and the same. To receive Jesus is to believe in his name. To believe in his name is to receive him. And it means to receive him for all that he is for us as revealed in the scriptures. That's what believing in his name means. So I I think Leon Morris has one of the best explanations of this. I'm simply just going to read for you what he put in his commentary about believing in the name of Jesus. This is very important. If you want to know, hey, how do I become a child of God? This is it. Notice that they are to believe in his name. The name meant much more to people of antiquity than it does to us. For us, it's a convenient label whereby we distinguish one person from another. The name is often a matter of indifference. Not so in the ancient world. There, it stood for the whole personality. When, for example, the psalmist spoke of loving the name of God, or when he prayed, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you, he did not have in mind simply the uttering of the name. He was speaking of all that God means. The name, in some way, expressed the whole person. To believe in the name of Jesus or the word then means to trust the person of the word. It's to believe in him as he is. It's to believe that God is the God revealed in the word and to put our trust in that God. You see, Jesus, the eternal word who became flesh, who came wrapped in flesh to reveal God to us and to redeem his people. That word was rejected. People rejected Jesus. All that God wants to say to us about who he is and how to have a relationship with him is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And we rejected him. And it's only those who will receive him as he is, as revealed in the scriptures, who become his children. 
Charles Spurgeon said, if a man would receive Christ, he must, first of all, receive him in his person as he is revealed in the sacred scriptures. And this, of course, includes a few things. Friends, receiving Jesus means believing his word. We must receive him as our, in some sense, our prophet. That means the words of Jesus are the words of God. And you believe them and you seek to obey them. There's a passage in John that connects this idea of receiving Jesus by believing in his word. It connects that idea to us being children of God. It's in John chapter 14. Jesus looked at the people. He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. Can you receive Jesus any more than loving him? And he's saying the one who loves me, what that looks like is hearing my word and keeping it. And he goes on. So whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. So if you want to be one of God's children, if you want to be loved by the father, you must receive Jesus by believing and keeping his word. In other words, those who believe his word are his children. That's one way that we receive Jesus. We take what he says and what he teaches it and we believe it. And we want to live in light of it. We know we're not perfect, but we receive Jesus and his teaching as the very word of God. But receiving Jesus also means we trust in his work. Not just that we believe in his word, but that we trust his work. And we trust in his work as our high priest. You see, the priest in the Old Testament was the one who would make atonement for the forgiveness of sins for all the people. And now we see in the New Testament that the ultimate high priest, the full and final high priest, is Jesus Christ. And that forgiveness of sins is found in his blood being spilled on the cross. Jesus said, if you want to have life, you must receive him as the bread of life. And the bread that he gives is his flesh poured out for us on the cross. So we must trust in his work as our high priest. There's not a list of good things you can do to make up for the bad things you've done. It never works out like that. You can spend your whole life trying to figure out mathematically How many good things do I need to do to make up for all the bad things so that I'm right before God? It will not work. The only way is to trust in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. To say there's nothing I can do to save myself, but he's paid the penalty for all my sin. And lastly, friends, to receive Jesus, it means to follow his ways. To believe his word, to trust his work and to follow his ways as our king. If you truly receive Jesus Christ, you receive him as he is, and he is God. And if he is God, he is king over all, and he is Lord. So to truly receive Jesus is to say, I'm no longer the Lord of my life. I'm no longer the God of my life. Jesus is. My question to you is, can you say that this morning? Do you believe in his word? Do you trust In his work, do you follow his ways? I mean, many of us love the idea of a savior. 
Who wouldn't want their sins forgiven? But do we love the idea of a Lord, of a ruler, of a king over our lives? Well, since Jesus is God, that must be who he is because he is Lord over all. He's God and to receive him is to receive him as such. This morning, have you received Jesus as your prophet, your priest and your king? Do you believe his word? Do you trust his work? Do you follow his ways? I want to suggest that there's a real problem in our hearts when we say we love Jesus, but we reject major teachings in the Bible. There's a real problem if we say we love Jesus, but we don't like the idea of free grace and mercy secured on the cross. Or if we're cool with Jesus, but just not cool with all this needing to be forgiven of our sins stuff. There's a real problem in our hearts if we say we love Jesus, but this part of my life over here, I want to remain Lord over it myself. And even though I've been shown his word and I've been taught by the Bible, and even though I've been spoken to by the church and encouraged by the preaching, I still refuse to follow his ways in this area. I'm not saying that we can't struggle. I'm just wondering if you've already predetermined that there's certain departments of your life that Jesus can have no control over. Have you really received him? Because it's only those who receive Jesus for all he is who receive the right to become children of God. Everything we've said so far is really detailed. And it's all really detailed because it's extremely important. Because we need to know how we can become children of God. It's the most important thing that you can figure out and understand in your life. But let's not overlook the awe-inspiring reality of this passage. That if you do receive Jesus, John says you will become one of God's children. Just sit on that for a moment. If you're a Christian this morning, you're one of God's children. And if you're not a Christian, are not sure. You can still become his child this morning. And now you know how to trust in him and to receive him. And you can have God as your father. Now, I don't know everybody's story, but sometimes it can be hard to think of God as a father if you never had an earthly one. Or even if you did, if he was never around. Maybe he didn't do the things that a father should do. And perhaps you're angry about that. You might be hurt about that. You might be embittered about that. And the last thing you want to think about God is in terms of being a father. But one thing's for sure. If you're hurt, if you're embittered by that, you're certainly not indifferent. And it's likely that you feel so hurt by it and you feel so angry about it because deep down you know that it matters to you and that he should have done more. And friends, even if you had a good earthly father, you've tasted of something of the sweetness it is to have a good dad and you know that it can mean the world. And so whether you're tasting this 
from the sweet side or from the bitter side, we're all tasting something that's incredibly important. And that is having a father. And here we learn that God can be your father. God is the ultimate father. He's a father who forgives his children. And yes, he, he disciplines them. But he disciplines the one that he loves and the ones that he's forgiven. What if he leaves me? What if he doesn't come around? What if he doesn't show up again? God is also a father who never forsakes his children. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What if he doesn't give me what I need? What if he doesn't take care of me? Well, your father in heaven, he clothes the lilies of the field and he feeds the birds in the sky. And he will also give you what you need. And he's a God who listens. If you've ever experienced the compassion of a dad who just simply inclines his ear to his children, God is like that, but infinitely better. You can talk to him whenever, wherever, and he will listen as your father. Friends, this is what we were made for. We were designed to have this kind of loving relationship with the God of the universe. But we ran away. We sinned against him. And we decided to be our own gods. And that's why we see in this passage that the word became flesh. That's why Jesus came to do away with all of our sin so that we can become God's children forever. But to receive that privilege, you must receive Jesus himself. There is no other way.